Jesus, the kingdom, and slavery. Ephesians chapter 6. I believe it starts in verse 5. If you'd like to open your Bible, great. If not, we do project one translation up on the screen. Servants, slaves, respectfully obey your earthy, earthly masters, your lords, but always with an eye to obeying the real master, Christ Jesus. Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's slaves, servants, doing what God wants you to do. And work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you good pay from the master, regardless of whether you are a slave or free. Masters do the same. No abuse, please. No threats. You and your servants, slaves, are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. Slavery in the Roman Empire uh, was abusive and it was degrading to those that were slaves. It, the Roman Empire was a class system. And at the, at the bottom rung were slaves. And then it went up to freedmen. And then it went up to plebeians. And it kept going up. Cruelty was commonplace. There was whippings. There was brandings. Uh, a slave owner could kill a slave, and there was absolutely no punishment. There was no criminal case. You know, just that was your slave. Do what you want to. Uh, slaves in the Roman Empire were prisoners of war. There were sailors that were captured and sold by pirates. Uh, there were people that were debtors. It was an indentured servant system. If you got into debt, that's a way to get out of debt. Um, sadly, even children... Uh, at times were sold into slavery by parents when times were really desperate. However, slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire was different than the slavery we just witnessed in the 15th century. And it was different because of two reasons. Number one, slavery in the first century was never racial. There was never a race of people that were considered less than others as they were in the 15th century. Those with black skin were considered to be cursed. It would, I mean, there was, a the, there was theology even written. Our forefathers in the faith have done us no favor by being racists in their theology. The other thing that makes it different was there was manumission. Manumission means that if I was in slavery in the first century, I had hope that if I worked hard and I was obedient to my master, the day would come that my master would set me free. Or I could gain enough money, even as a slave, that I could buy my freedom. So slaves in the first century lived with the hope one day I can be a freedman. One day I can earn my own way in society. And that happened with regularity in the first century. That did not happen in the 15th century. Once a slave, always a slave, because your race is a slave race. 
Now, interestingly, I need to remind us that the Bible does address slavery. God, remember, at kind of the beginning, God set Israel free from slavery. I mean, that kind of the, the redemptive story, God purchased a people out of slavery, and that's kind of a theme that runs throughout the Bible that we don't want to forget. And then when Jesus comes along with the good news of the kingdom, part of that good news of the kingdom was setting the captives free. So the Bible nowhere ever says slavery is okay. It does something that's even more profound. Listen to this quote. The submission of slaves to their masters is demanded. We just, we just read one of the places that slaves are commanded to obey their masters. But it was not because slavery is ordained by God. Slavery is accepted as a social reality which primitive Christianity was not in a position to abolish externally. Among Christians, it could be overcome by brotherhood in agape, in love, but it could not be set aside legally. So in the first century, as people came to know Jesus, who were both slaves and masters, they began to realize we don't have the clout in the Roman Empire to get rid of this institution, but because we are now brothers bound by the cross of Jesus and the love of Jesus, something began to change within the system. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. The power of the cross enters the picture. The redeeming act of Jesus, which applies to all men, irrespective of their status and origin, because all have equal need of the redemption that was found on the cross. So if, if you're a slave or you're a master, everybody needs salvation through Jesus, is basically what that's saying. The distinction between the curios, Lord, and the doulos, slave, can only have relative significance compared with the fellowship in which both are set by their common participation in Christ. So the power of the cross that brought a slave and a master together in koinonia, close friendship, sharing, even though the institution was still active. The primary goal of the slave, one for Christ, is not the attainment of freedom. That's really remarkable. Think about that. External freedom is valuable but its value is only relative compared with what communion with Christ brings, compared with freedom from self and all the conditions that spoil life, compared with freedom for God and His will, which is the gift of Christ. That means you can be a slave and not be free, and yet be free because of Jesus. And first century... Slaves and their masters begin to discover that. The secret in this passage that we've been looking at is a new word. I'm sorry that Peter is not here. Everybody say, hello, Peter. Hello, Peter. We hope he hears that. 
Because Peter would always come up with great words. Superordination would be a word that Peter would use. As we've traveled through Ephesians 5, and now we're finishing with this, uh, submission has been within, there's a theme of submission. Hupostasis is the Greek verb. But in that submission to state, submission to husband, submission to master, the primary point is recognition of the existing relation of superordination. What that means, we're going to discover, is this. Submit to one another within what Paul is writing means nothing unless you add that which is at the higher level. Submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. There's something at a higher plane that then begins to enter into our relationships. Or wife, you know, submit to your husband. If that's all that was, we could have all the conversation that we're having. But it's not just submit to your husband. It is submit to your husband as you submit to the Lord. So a woman submits to the Lord, and then that makes sense in submitting to a husband. So there's, some, there's, there's a higher principle that this is going for. It's the same, same thing for men. Hey, guys, you know, you know, you're the head of the family, but as Christ is the head of the church, not just, I'm the head of the family, I'm the jefe. No. As Christ is the head, higher level, then then you're the head of your family. So remember how Jesus leads? Superordination. Men, love your wife, but not just love your wife. Love your wife as Jesus loved the church. Whoa! Again, there's something really at a level above our relationships that guides this. And you just keep going down through everything we've read in these relationships between husband and wife, between parent and child. Now with slave and master... There's this idea of subordination, superordination in it. And it kind of looks like this. Seek first the kingdom. And if you're a slave in the kingdom of God, then your real master is Jesus. So the real master is Jesus, whether you be a slave or a master. And so now we have a slave and a master on equal ground with one master, Jesus. And how the slave and the master relate to one another is connected with the real master, Jesus. And if we can get that picture, that's how this is radicalizing the society that these people lived in. And oh, that it would radicalize ours. We need the kingdom of God in the workplace. So we can take that idea slave and master, and bring it kind of like to employee, employer. It's similar. And what that means, if you're an employee, then as we listen to Jesus, who is the real boss, then we respectfully listen to our boss. We work heartily as servants of Jesus, doing what God wants us to do, not merely the bare minimum of what is expected of us. Again, we're, we're, we have a higher calling. Remember back in Ephesians 4, live a life worthy of your invitation into the kingdom. Well, now you're getting to the nuts and bolts of it. 
We work with a smile on our face because we're serving God. And that's no matter who's giving the orders or even how those orders are given. And then we receive good pay from Jesus for our good work. Even when we work for low, in this case, there was no wages lots of times. But when Jesus is my master, and I'm a slave, and I'm serving a master, then my hope is in Jesus. It's not in my earthly master. It totally changes employment. And then when you, if you're an employer, it starts out with something really remarkable. If you're the master, if you're the employer, it's the same for you. What's the same for me? Well, listen to Jesus. Because Jesus is the real boss. Even when you're a master, even when you're the employer, Jesus is still your boss. Listen to him. Work heartily as servants of Jesus, doing what God wants you to do as an employer. Work with a smile on your face, serving God as an employer. You receive good pay from Jesus for your good work as an employer. And then he adds some other responsibilities if you're the employer, if you're the master. No abuse. Don't abuse people. Don't talk down to people. Don't threaten people. That's not how Jesus relates to you. We both serve the same master. Slave, master, employee, employer. We serve the same master. And it begins to change our relationship. He makes no distinction between us. Doesn't matter if I'm a slave or a master, employee, employee. There's no difference in Jesus' eyes. So if we understand that revelation that's coming through those verses, here's some suggestions for us. I'm not running for president, but here's my plan for economic recovery. Jesus needs to be in the workplace. It's just that simple. Our economy works because people like to work. And if you're following Jesus and you're an employee, then welcome Jesus to the workforce. So tomorrow morning, wherever you show up to work, somehow talk to Jesus from your whatever, your desk, your car. I don't, doesn't, I don't know where everybody works. But say, hey, Jesus, I'm so glad to have a job and you're my real boss. And I welcome you. I want you to rule and reign right here where I work. And did you notice the quality control? Don't just try to get by with a minimum. Work heartily, as if Jesus is sitting right there as your supervisor. I mean, wouldn't we want to like really please Jesus with how we worked? Wouldn't we like, like want to try to get as much done as possible? Horrible analogy. I worked in a door manufacturing plant one time in college. And one time, I, my, my job was feeding material into a shutter slat maker. It's several saws. Brut, brut, brut. And that was my job. Brut, brut, brut. Keep my fingers out of the saw. Brut, brut, brut. But I noticed also that it kind of cut off these neat little things that were kind of crosses. So I thought, okay, 
I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to keep track. How many of those things am I going to make in a day? And then I'm going to collect all these little crosses and make little things at home. And I like made 9,000 shutter slats in a day. I mean, that was my record. But that was, it was just something began to, and it, you know, it really wasn't Jesus there. It was just kind of a boring job, but it became fun. But in a way, because that little cross was there, I, it was a reminder, Jesus is in this, even if you're doing something very mundane. And work hard, not minimum standards, as much as you can. Payday. When you get a check, next paycheck, on the memo line, write, thanks, Jesus. Because ultimately, the real payday is going to be from him. And if you get paid less than you think, you should just say, like, oh, well, payday's common. I mean, it could be worse. I mean, you could be like a slave that got nothing. Some of our, I mean, some of these first, they didn't get paid, but they still, thank you, Jesus. I got a place to live. I got some food. Jesus in the workplace. Please don't. I mean, to most of who's going to work tomorrow? I mean, raise your hand. How many of us are going to work tomorrow? I mean, that's like the majority of us. And this is like tomorrow morning. Can we think about Jesus tomorrow morning, not just like on Sunday morning? You know, and can can we like? I mean, we could like start something good in our economy just by putting this into action. Wouldn't that be fun? Things start turning around. We don't know what's happened to the economy in the United States, but it's off the charts. People seem happy at work. Could you get an interview? Why are you happy at work? Well, I'm really working for Jesus. Wouldn't that cause people to wonder? Wouldn't it be great? Now, there's something else in this passage that is a greater challenge than that. And I really pray for a couple of things. One, I pray that you understand what I'm saying. Because this is, could really get misunderstood. So if we go down this path and you misunderstand me, please talk to me before you leave today. Our forefathers in the faith had the discernment, the wisdom to realize there was a despicable institution that was contrary to the kingdom of God that was a social reality. And they did not have, in many ways, the political clout to change it. And so, therefore, they didn't worry about changing it. What they worried about is how they lived in it. And something changed in them that then, over time, changed that institution. I really, really believe that the church that is following Jesus Christ today, in the days that we're living, we need to find out what that wisdom is. There are some social realities today that really are contrary to the things that I read in the Bible. They're contrary to our history as a nation. But God, give us the wisdom when we can recognize we don't have the clout to change that politically, but God can begin to change us and others, and something over time will change from the inside out. 
when we're not in a position to abolish something externally, we overcome by brotherhood and agape. Even when it cannot be set aside legally. What we cannot lose as followers of Jesus is love of God, love of each other, and love of those that are not like us. In the day that we live, if we were before the the judgment throne of Jesus, I think this would be one of the questions. Okay, people. Did you accept and befriend everybody? Can the church say that they accept and befriend people regardless of where they are? I think that's going to be one of the questions. And I would like for us to be able to say yes. It's because we understood the brotherhood of love. We understood how powerful love is. We understood that by loving each other, by loving God, and by loving those that fall way short like we do, that something happens in this planet for good. The other thing is, the value of external freedom is only relative when compared with what communion with Christ brings through the power of the cross. My friends, democratic freedom, political freedom, is not the same as the freedom of the cross. And as much as we value as a nation freedom, as a follower of Jesus, I would survive if I lost that freedom. Because I found the freedom at the cross. Do we value the freedom that we have in Christ as greater than the freedom that we have politically or nationally? Again, I really think it's important for us to think through that for a couple of reasons. There have been nations that were, quote, Christian, that despicable things happened. Rwanda was considered the most Christian of the African nations. And what happened in Rwanda? People stopped loving each other. People started hating each other. People started demonizing each other, and it was all said and done. What did they do? They chopped each other up with machetes. And that would have been Christian killing Christian. We're not above that. That's within us, within our human nature. So, yeah, do, do we have a heritage? Yes. Have people paid the ultimate for the freedom? Yes. But it's not greater than the freedom that Jesus bought for us on the cross. And we can't lose sight of that. We cannot lose sight of that. 
So in this passage that we've been traveling through, what we're really seeing is we're seeing how this living, worthy of the invitation into the kingdom of God begins to work out in our relationships. Our marriages change because we're members of the kingdom of God. Our families change because we're members of the kingdom of God. The workplace changes. The institutions of society change because there's the kingdom of God. What I'd really like us to focus on Let's just focus on our marriages. wouldn't Wouldn't it be great in our day if the current statistics on marriage would change because in following Jesus we focused on us and what's wrong within the church of Jesus rather than on others? My friends, we don't have any better track record in marriage than people outside the church. And so when we start showing up and protesting... What, what does that look like? I think it's called hypocrisy. You guys are just moralists. You're telling us what to do, but you're not doing it. So why don't we focus on us, put all that energy into us? How can we strengthen the marriage so that, you know, that 50% of divorce drops to 40, drops to 30, drops to... You know, maybe it won't get to zero because there's humanity still in the church. But wouldn't it be great? Our forefathers in the face, the first, the first, they, were, they were known as the people that did not kill their kids. We don't have that reputation. As many children conceived in the church are dying now. As that, you know. So what in the world are we doing? What, what are we, we're not taking care of our own business. So again, what does that look like? Yeah, do I value? Yes, I value life. We say that, but statistically, we're not living it. So again, it's mute. I mean, we're like, what are we? It's like clamoring, you know what, huh? Somehow, this brotherhood of love needs to be unleashed within us. The power of the cross the freedom that it brings, I mean, it just needs to be, something needs to explode within us. And we focus, man, we got to take care of our own house for the benefit of the planet. Because if we're not leading the way in social issues like this, who, who's going to lead the way? I mean, we're, we'd be lost as humanity. And God's trying to save us, and it's us that he's saved. Wisdom. We need wisdom to address the social realities in our day. Now next week, this is an interesting connection. Next week is put on the armor of God and fight the good fight. What have we just been talking about? Marriage, family, Workplace relationships. Guess where the battle is? The battle is in our relationships. God's wanting to restore that which was lost from the very first family. That's where the battle is. So would you like to stand with me?
I'd just like you to take, if you have a job, would you just take a moment and just kind of come up with an action plan in your head? Tomorrow morning when I walk into my office, this is what I'm going to do in light of welcoming Jesus into the workplace. Okay, just take a moment to do that. Let's just decide now what we're going to do tomorrow and then Tuesday and then Wednesday. Okay, take a moment, just do that. Jesus, we want to acknowledge that you are the real boss. We want to acknowledge that you want us to work heartily for you. You want us to work hard. You want us to work well. And we want to acknowledge also that the pay that we receive really ultimately comes from you. You will reward us for our hard work. So Lord, I would ask for us as a community of people that we would show up tomorrow in our respective places of employment. And whether we're an employee or an employer, we would remember what we've looked at today and that we would welcome you, Jesus, into the workplace. We do that on Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday, that that would just become a lifestyle with us in welcoming you to where we work. And then, Lord, I do ask, I, I do ask that you would give us, and really our brothers and sisters across this nation, give us wisdom concerning the social realities of our day. And, Lord, I pray that we would come to a new understanding of what it means to love each other, what it means to love you, and what it means to love those that are not like us. And then, Lord, I ask that you would give us insight into what it means to be free. When we're in Christ, we are free indeed. We're, free, we're even more free than we're free today in Christ. Teach us that, Lord. Finally, Lord, I thank you for our brother, William Wilberforce, who for 30 years at great cost, financial cost, reputation lost, health on the brink. For 30 years, he petitioned for the end of slavery in the British Empire. And thank you that he did that because he knew you. Thank you that he did that because he knew that all people, regardless of color, are equal in your eyes. Thank you that he did that because he knew that there was a social evil that was displeasing to you. And Lord, I pray that even within this community of people, that there'd be another William Wilbur, somebody called of you, whether it be male or female, to move our society out of some of the things it's stuck in. Or give us wisdom 
Give us your power through your love on the cross. Finally, I, do, I, I was very serious when I said if, if, uh, if what I'm saying troubles you, I really would welcome conversation with you. And so we can do that before you leave today. It would be great to do that. So I pray God's wisdom on us, God's love, God's best in his name. Amen.